Hello and welcome to another wonderful edition of the Movies and Tea After Hours. Tonight we have an addition to our Guillermo del Toro season as we check out his first season on Netflix of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. I'm your host Zoe, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. So obviously if you listen to our second season all those many moons ago you would know that we are obviously big fans of Del Toro so there was much excitement when we found out that Del Toro was going to be bringing his love of horror to Netflix for a eight episode horror anthology following in the giving us a show which is uh, very much in the vein of the likes of Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and certainly can also be compared to many of the great horror anthology series such as like Tales from the Crypt or Masters of Horror Tales from the Dark Side um, and Del Toro here not only handpicking the directors but also the stories including two he wrote himself um, and bringing bring together a selection of very interesting filmmakers um, many of which have had impact on various degrees on the independent horror scene some of people that have worked with Del Toro and uh, tonight we're obviously going to go through the initial eight episode run of this series and uh, let you know our thoughts in a what's no doubt going to be a very spoiler heavy episode so you can see yourself pre-warned but Kim are you a fan of the horror anthology format? Yeah, I am. I mean, I I, be, I believe we've talked a few times about horror anthologies, and I'm, I'm, I'm in general pretty into it. Uh, I mean, I think I've watched a good portion of it, uh, barring maybe one or two. So uh, I'm, I, I was really excited to see what this one had to offer, um, considering, you know, like, we have David Fincher, who does his you know, Love, Death, and Robots that we personally really like also, yep. and... And that's also, you know, anthology format in, in that sort of style as well. And, um, I mean, <laughs> Love, Death, and Rob Robots, a comparison to this one is a lot easier to go through <laughs> than this one. This one is uh, much longer short films um, in their stories. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're quite lengthy. I mean, some of them is... Uh, is is better than others, I guess. Like none of them, I think here is very disappointing. But uh, in, but in general, they they all have something to be, you know, something to appreciate in every one of them. But obviously, we all have our, you know, obviously off where we've discussed some of the some of the ones that we've liked and disliked. Definitely. So I think when this when this series like came up, reminded me on uh, Netflix that it was coming up. There was obviously that hope that it would be something to fill the time before we got another season of Love, Death and Robots. And when I got a couple of episodes deep into this and I was like, oh, no, this is not like Love, Death and Robots at all. This is a very different beast entirely. And second, I'm making Kim watch this as well and felt kind of bad about that as well. So. Well, I mean, there's nothing to feel bad about. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, you know, you know, kind of like the style that he has and kind of like because of the season we did we've we're now you know especially paying a lot more special attention to what he has coming out and honestly uh also the directors that he's interested in you know especially like you know when we when we talked about um uh don't be afraid of tigers and that one is you know that's also by a director that he appreciates which i was surprised didn't have a segment in this because i 
from you know like how much he seemed to like really love that film itself and yeah you would have thought that he maybe would have um given her something to do here yeah i mean certainly uh, toast not afraid i mean that's still a movie that i think about even now um and to think that it's on shutter is even more sort of mind-blowing really the fact that they were the ones who sort of picked it up but no um it's a lopez i know that he's working with her on her next film which i believe is about werewolf cowboys mm. uh, which i'm very excited to uh see but no it, it you're right it is very sort of surprising that she didn't have uh something in this at all yeah but i mean you know barring that you know that that you know that she's not in there and that's kind of a little bit shocking to me but there was a, there's a lot of like when we look through all of the directors here they all are very um you know there, there's things that we've you know we've definitely seen of theirs um from you know producers that worked with him or is it, is it a producer i can't remember and then there is also like um people uh, other directors who have had other very successful films in particularly the indie indie scene yeah. Um, and you even look at kind of like a lot of the actors, while some of them are more in supporting roles in other films and uh, TV series or something like that, they still are fairly, you know, like they, they, there's a good cast of uh, like there's a good cast that goes with each of these stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, so should we get into yep. the stories? Uh, first off, we had Lot 36. Uh, this is uh, directed by Guillermo Navarro. Um, Navarro is a Academy Award winning cinematographer and is best obviously known for his work with Del Toro, um, as well as directing episodes of Hannibal and Luke Cage. Um, he won the best... won the... Um, Academy Award for Best Cinematography for Pan's Labyrinth, and has since gone on to work on films such as like Hellboy, Zantrua, Space Adventure, Night Museum, and Pacific Rim. So it kind of makes sense, obviously, that he's included here, obviously having worked with Del Toro so closely over the course of his career. And certainly when it came to Lot 36, this was a story based on a short story by Del Toro himself, in which a xenophobic right-wing veteran uh, called Nick, here played by Tim Blake Nelson, the first of many really interesting actors who turn up over the course of this series and in this episode we also have Sebastian Roche as well which is very exciting if you're a fan of Fringe especially. He's a, a veteran, he's down on his luck, he's deaf in one ear, his wife has left him and he's very sort of generally angry at the world and at the same time he's purchased the right to an abandoned storage room which the daughter of the previous owner um, initially pleased with him to let her gather some belongings from there and he basically shuts her down and over the course of the clearing this locker he finds that you know this locker contains a number of strange items including um, some volumes of demon summoning a German seance table and it's through tried to sell these items that he meets this buyer called Roland um, here played by Sebastian Roche who says that he'll offer him like 300,000 if he can find this missing volume so the pair go back to the locker only to uh, uncover the true secrets that have been hidden by its former owner this one is obviously I think when you get to the big twist here um, you can see that Del Toro's fingerprints really clearly over this because there's a real Lovecraftian um, influence when it came to his 
monster of the week um, that he includes in the finale here and certainly I think every time that you uh, see something which is like a mass of tentacles or demonic summoning then Lovecraft is normally an influence somewhere behind it because that's kind of his bag and certainly (laughs) there are some uh, adaptations of Lovecraft stories here but I don't know about yourself Kim but I really like Old Satanists so this uh, episode was really up my street I think that in terms of the Satanist angle, it is very good because um, that's the angle that I really do like. But um, Lot 36 is the kicking off episode. And I think it's a really good way to kick off this whole cabinet of curiosities, um, mostly because it's the most kind of light (laughs) on whatever they're doing type of thing. Um, it's a, you know, it's a decent sized story running the shortest in the whole, you know, all the eight episodes, it's 45 minutes and, and it's, you know, it, it, it's pretty fast paced in the sense that things move, you know, like the pieces fall together pretty quickly as he's, you know, going through everything and there's, you know, certain little angles to it, which come in. And obviously when you get to, when you get to the, when you get to the big finale, it really works. Um, the only thing is that I... I don't know, maybe it's because of all the F-bombs that I didn't like, or... <laughs> I don't really like movies with a lot of F-bombs. Like, I find it very unnecessary. Yeah. Um, and I like... But then, at the same time, I feel like there's, like, this really... Um, kind of, like... It's kind of, like, reverse psychology here, where he's bringing this person who's very, like... Make America great again. <laughs> yeah. And um, so he's kind of racist, and he's kind of very... Um, just he he has this like very uh, you know right side type of is a right side um, yeah yeah he's... type of point of view um, in everything and and it's and it it kind of I guess it it makes a character a bit more exaggerated on that like it's very intense as a character that you're watching because he's just so he's just so angry all the time. Um, so when you're doing this, it's kind of like the whole cynical personality kind of eventually seeps away when things turn bad hmm. and it kind of comes to bite him in the ass. <laughs> yeah, it's um, fun as well. The fact that we get another throwback to uh, the Pale Man sequence in Pan's Labyrinth as um, he's obviously told not to do something. So, of course, what does he instantly go and do? It's sort of like with a pale man chain where it's like, don't touch anything. So, of course, she goes and steals the grape. And this one, it's like, don't break the protective seal. So what does he do? <laughs> it's all like, it's like, great. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I really, I like the the monster here. Because it's, as I say, yeah. it's basically a, it's just a basically a mass of swelling tentacles. <laughs> it's like yeah. within a human, within a human uh, frame. So I think there's... The actual design work in this episode is really fantastic. So, the fact that it's Del Toro cinematographer is directing you, it doesn't sort of stray mm. too far from like the Del Toro world. And I think in many ways it's kind of set up a a little bit of a a false expectation for where the rest of the series would go, because in with this one it felt like something that could belong in like um, Love, Death, and Robots or Masters of Horror. It just felt like a very sort of modern horror story with some very um, old school sort of twists in there and. I just kept chasing that dragon to try hoping that something would replicate what this episode gave me. And I think that the next episode, Graveyard Rats, comes close. But mm-hmm. um, certainly with this one, it sort of like felt that it was almost like part of a different show compared to everything else that we see over this uh, 
this series and certainly we see some things yeah i mean lot 36 is i i think that when you talk about it i think that the best part of this is is the cinematography if there was anything you know obviously coming from a director who <laughs> who's an award-winning cinematographer um there's something like there are some really elements that are really like and one obviously is the, is the creature they're talking about like you know the tensely type of creature that they have and and at the same time i also like how they play i'm a really like it's one of my favorite things to talk about when we talk about horror films is how people use darkness to their advantage um, I know I talked about it before when we were talking about, you know, our top 10 scare, scariest moments, top five scariest moments. And yeah. then I talked about lights out and the unique way. And here I really like it also because this storage lot um, is lit by this timer lighting. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, when is the light going to turn off type of thing, right? You have this like kind of ticking in the background of, of the of the light going and then, and then, oh, you have to turn it back on and then you have to wait for the next moment. And I think that that plays so well in the darkness. Like, like when you turn on the lights every single time, what's going to be right next to you, right? Um, what, like, what lurks in the darkness? And um, I mean, that's like my final thought on Lot 36. I think that um, you are right. I do agree. This is completely different and it's kind of sets up a different set of expectations. But um, this definitely isn't my favorite in this, um, in this one. But uh, I mean... I guess I'm not like I don't have the same love of this as you do. So <laughs> next up, we had Graveyard Rats. This was directed by Vincenzo Natale, who um, is probably best known for directing Cube as well as Splice. Um, he's one of those directors that I always felt never got the sort of uh, praise that that I felt he uh, and recognition that I felt he, he deserved, especially because Cube is fantastic and Splice is also fantastic. Um, he has recently, in 2019, he did In the Tall Grass. Well, I mean, the only one I watched of his is Haunter, which I thought was pretty decent, but I know that people didn't really like it. <laughs> hmm. What do they know? Um, this one is uh, based on a short story by Henry Cutner. Again, another Lovecraftian link, because... Cutner is a horror writer who was had worked. He was friends with uh, Lovecraft, and he actually contributed quite a lot to the Cthulhu Mythos um, stories, which outlines many of the lesser, lesser of the great gods. Um, so, amongst his sort of contributions, you had things such as like Vorderos, the Hydra, Nogoth. Um, and his sort of, I think, responsible in many ways for adding a fair bit to that Cthulhu mythos, which whenever you talk about, obviously, Lovecraft, I mean, Cthulhu is always sort of like front and centre, and I think he was very sort of key in playing that. And again, it's unsurprising that Del Toro would choose one of his stories to be included in this set. Uh, but Greyhound Rats is a, a period piece, which is a warning sign for myself straight away, because I'm not a huge fan of period pieces, nor gothic. So... Um, this one, though, is actually pretty good, as it features David Hewitt um, as Masson, who is a not only the guy, uh, the guy who looks after the graveyard, but he also has a sideline in Grave Robin, um, which he uses <laughs> to pay off his gambling debts. And unfortunately, he's hit a bit of a bad streak with his gambling debts with the local gangsters uh, that he owes money to threatening to bury him alive. At the same time, he's having trouble getting hold of possessions because, as he claims, the graveyard rats are stealing them. And 
Upon coming across a recently buried aristocrat, he formulates a plan to get the uh, gold teeth from the mouth of this aristocrat before the graveyard rats do. However, when he opens it up, he finds that the rats have already made off with the body, and hence leading him into a journey of labyrinth tunnels and horrible, horrible beasties that uh, lie beneath the graveyard. Kim, when it comes to uh, period horror, are you a, a fan? I know you're obviously a fan of like Austin and Bronte and stuff, so does that extend to horror? I don't know. I don't seem to have like a, you know, specific frame of like when things are set that bothers me. It's more like, it's more like how the story comes through, right? Yeah. That makes more sense to me. And for Graveyard Rats, I don't really think it mattered what era it was set in. Um, I do like, you know, the more gothic type of um, style sometimes. Uh, I can, like, I do appreciate a lot of that sort of, um, like, uh, it's like when Del Toro did, uh, what's his face there? The, the one with the big haunted uh, house. Um, oh, Crimson Peak. Yeah, the Crimson Peak. Like, I appreciated it the first time. It was just when I watched it again that, you know, <laughs> there was a, a little bit of a different opinion in it. Um, I mean, whoever's interested can head over and listen to our episode. Uh, for Graveyard Rats, I think I think what really shown was really the whole claustrophobic atmosphere they had of going through all the tunnels. And like, oh, when was it going to cave in? Like, what branch was he going to pull that rocks were going to come down? Or, you know, like, oh, where are the rats coming from? Because, you know, like, you have these little squeaky sounds and you're like, Ugh. you know, like the, it just kind of, it's like this, like, spine tingling type of moment. Like, oh, I don't really like this, you know, type of feeling. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean, but Graveyard Rats was really good because, you know, at the end we obviously had a really nice twist when he falls down this, like, big hole um, that sinks into the ground and then he gets into this area and then he realizes there's actually not only, you know, that one threat that's there, but there's also other threats that's here. Yeah, I think this is... I mean, I kind of would have been happy if we just left it with giant rats. I didn't think we needed to add <laughs> add a, a dark yeah. chapel underneath the graveyard, and we didn't need to have zombie skeletons <laughs> underneath the graveyard as well. So uh, it's weird as well. It's also, but this is the shortest episode in the set. I think this is about 35 minutes long, um, and yet it still manages to cram a great deal of, of things into it. Um, David Hewitt is absolutely outstanding as this, as Masson. I think he was really fantastic here. And just to yeah. see the desperation of someone willing to crawl through rat-infested rat tunnels to uh, go and find uh, the, the the heirlooms that uh, he wants that are going to pay off his gambling debts, I think was uh, really fantastic. And at the end, it has a really great payoff as well. Mm, yes. Um, that ending, it. man. Woo! <laughs> It brings back memories of the vanishing in many ways and then just adds on to it in a whole other level. So I thought the end, the end, the payoff at the end was really fantastic. I thought that was really great. And um, um, I'm trying to remember. We obviously have like passages of like when he's climbing up the tunnel in there and he's uh, quoting lines from Paradise Lost, mm. um, which is obviously Milton. Um, which again, I'm not going to say it's because you know I'm not going to claim to be my literary skills. I only remember it because it's a line from Seven. Okay. So <laughs> that's the only reason I was like, I was like, that's the only reason I knew uh, the line he's quoting because it's um, a line used by John Doe in Seven. So ah, uh, okay. 
<laughs> okay. But um, yeah. yeah, Kim. Yeah, but I mean, like for graveyard rats, you know, it's 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 just it's interesting because I recently had watched a short at um at the Toronto After Dark, uh, like covered for Toronto After Dark, and it was a real. And I was thinking in my mind, oh, what a great pairing this would make. And that was um, there's this short called The Rat Catcher's Daughter, which would be such a fantastic addition to this. Um, that one's like an animated horror. But it, it also uses rats in such a clever way. Um, and that was, you know, that's that's my little thought that I had when I was watching this. I think Graveyard Rats is, like, very straightforward. I think while I believe, while I really appreciated the, you know, the moving skeletons and stuff, Dark Chapel at the bottom. Yeah. Um, it You are right that it didn't need to be there. I think the rats were sufficiently scary enough. Um, but I didn't hate that, you know, I didn't hate that addition too much. And, and and it's actually and I and to be fair, I think that Graveyard Rats has one of the better endings, like one of the best endings probably in all of the shorts that are coming up. You know that that in the in this in this whole cabinet of curiosities. Yeah, it's um, it is a really great ending. It's funny how it just comes full circle that um, we open with Masson chasing off a, a pair of grave robbers, only to find out that he's actually a grave robber himself, and then we encounter these characters at the end of the uh, episode and it just everything comes full circle it's just um yeah it's a really really great great episode so uh this is a recommendation for myself at least anyway so mm-hmm. absolutely uh next up we have the autopsy directed by david Pryor, um based on a short story by michael shea uh we're featuring a script by david s goya david Pryor is a america is a director uh, as well as a Screenwriter, and he's probably best known for um, The Empty Man, which, um, if you have Disney Plus, is probably one of the few things that you've watched on there. <laughs> and, well, I mean, he's also credited for uh, two of the episodes on the TV series, uh, the, 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 the Netflix uh, documentary, Voir. Which is so funny because we were just talking about that before we came on today as well. So, um, <laughs> yes, he was the director for Summer of the Shark, and but I don't like him. Yeah, Voir is, it, it was great. It was like one of those few decent uh, film documentaries that we've had recently. And then obviously Elvis Mitchell's Am I Black Enough For You, which also just recently hit Netflix as well, being uh, the second as late. So I hope uh, Netflix continues this trend of just making good film documentaries now because I don't think I need any more video game documentaries or why we love toys or <laughs> the 80s and stuff. So, But uh, no, the autopsy is for myself just like a real classic so like out of limits style episode um in which an aging sheriff um brings in his uh friend dr carl winters to perform autopsies on several miners who recently died um when a one of the uh people from, one of the uh guys from town another miner turned up with uh an object that exploded causing the mine to collapse um at the same time dr winters has terminal cancer and but um agrees to carry out these autopsies as a favor to his friend um along the way piecing together the mystery surrounding joe allen as well as what happened um to him this um this is probably the one that I think when you talk to most people about this series, this is one that has been sort of widely deemed as being one of the most popular episodes of the series. And I can see why, because it's 
doesn't feel it's one of the few episodes that doesn't feel that it went on like too long i mean a lot of these episodes they feel that we have an ending and then it rolls on for another 10 minutes uh making me wonder did netflix have like a requirement for these episodes that they had to all be like an hour rather than the usual sort of 40 to 45 minutes um but certainly it does mean that um, a lot of the episodes suffer but when it came to the autopsy i think that how it was paced and um the structure and certainly the payoff was just was just really fantastic for this one so oh yeah i mean i'm a big fan of like autopsy of jane doe and i talk about it mm. all the time and i know you haven't seen it yet and i feel no, like but you gave if, a I big keep, if i keep talking about it talking up to it like because i know a lot of people don't like it as well so um but this one like the autopsy obviously reminded me a lot of that type of vibe like you had that kind of dreading feeling as you're you know going through this autopsy after you know from all the people of the miners that got pulled out of um got pulled out of the of the shaft and he's trying to figure out you know what happened and uh, as he's recording all this and i think that the cleverest part is really i think that this one also had a really decent ending um, it was such a clever way to end the whole situation because obviously in the middle you have kind of this um, possession sort of deal, I guess you would call that. Yeah. Uh, and it's and through all this, you know, you have this character who's possessing this body that feels like he's you know thought everything through. He knows every thought in your mind. He never he knows everything, right? And then, you know, at the end, you realize that, well, no one is invincible. And that and that is so great. Like, I really love that type of that type of ending. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it is a really great, great um, ending. I mean, the idea of, as you said, it's just the, uh, the this entity obviously thinking and believing it's more intelligent because it's existed for all these millennia and uh, obviously encounters comes across uh, the doctor who finds the one thing that it hasn't counted on but just throughout i think i was a little suspect of where the story was was going i mean mm -hmm. obviously it, it got a little shaky and there's a couple of moments where i didn't think but i think by the end it sort of brings it all together well enough for it to for that payoff to work and i think certainly the autopsy sequences which are just really yeah. Are really great. I mean, it's stylistically it's shot very well as well. It's got a yeah. real sort of nice style to it, and you get this whole sort of like small town. The fact that they don't have a proper autopsy uh, room set up, so they've basically set up a meat packing plant to, <laughs> for these autopsies to be carried off because it's the only room they can make cold enough. And just uh, as he's sort of piecing it together as he's carrying out the autopsy, I think it was just uh, it was just really great. So. Yeah, another recommendation for my there, there definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next up, we have the outside by Anna Lily Amarpour, who directed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, as well as The Bad Batch, two films I was really ecstatic about and uh, really enjoyed. Um, Kim, we obviously talked about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, which I think we both liked. Yeah, we both like that one. Yeah, I have yet to watch Bad Batch. It keeps getting pushed back in my list. I should really, I should really get to it. <laughs> it's the problem if it's a Netflix exclusive. You know, it's not going anywhere. So you just tend to like put it aside for like watching other things, like Stranger Things or whatever you're binge watching at the minute. So <laughs> I don't uh, this one's anything. <laughs> no, that's the thing. You got a young child. You can't no uh, no Netflix time for you either. 
Um, this is based on the webcomic by Emily Carroll, um, and this one stars uh, Kate Micucci, who I'm a huge fan of. It also has uh, Martin Starr in it as well, who, uh, if you're a fan of Freaks and Geeks or um, Silicon Valley, you'll be well aware of who he is. And he's been building up a nice cult reputation on the indie scene, especially as of late. But um, here, uh, Michucci plays uh, Stacy, who is a bank clerk who is socially awkward. She feels unattractive. Um, and at the same time, all the women she's sort of surrounded with are living this sort of like Valley of the Doll style existence where they all talk about who's getting divorced, who's shacking up with who, um, and living these seemingly perfect lives. And when she's invited to one of her co workers' uh, Christmas parties, she's given a um, a bottle of this lotion called Aloe Glow, which uh, promises to provide the secret uh, secret to uh, all life's woes as it will make you incredibly beautiful. However, it basically causes her a rash and uh, leads her down a real rabbit hole where the lines between reality and fantasy become ever so blurred. But, um, Kevin, this one plays into TV shopping. Have you actually bought anything off TV shopping? Because I worked no. for the call centre that used to sell all that tat, so... <laughs> No, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't do that sort of thing. And plus, like, I don't actually have TV channels anymore. No, so. no, you're the, the generation. <laughs> my just my main streaming. thing is Netflix. So Netflix and Shutter, right? So it's it's really come to the point where for me, it's it doesn't have that same appeal. Um, and it's not like I stay up late enough to look at like you know these shopping channels and whatever channels <laughs> go on. Um, and I always feel like if I pay that stuff, they're probably not going to send it to me. I feel like I'm getting a conned. So <laughs> <laughs> it is always in the back of your mind. It's sort of like, why is it not available in shops? <laughs> it's, um, but yeah, as the person who used to take all the orders of that stuff, I can guarantee that, uh, if it wasn't a music collection, it was tap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the outside is very weird. Like it's it's a very very odd type of series, but it kind of matches the character um, that they're portraying here. Mm. Um, and I mean, Stacy is is an odd duck, and and I I say that in the most literal way, <laughs> literal <laughs> and like I don't know because you know she does she's into like you know taxidermy is her hobby, yeah. <laughs> and she has these like and um and. And, you know, like, but it's such a nice series because it, it focuses on um, the extremities you would go to and the pressures of kind of like the work environment, the society that you're in for, you know, her to look a certain way or be a certain way. And um, it starts kind of weighing down on her a lot as it becomes apparent like she really, really wants to fit in. Um, I, you know, I think that... Er I think a lot of people go through that in their lives and like obviously this is a super extreme situation and you can't really tell where it's gonna go because the whole time I was watching this I felt like is this going in her head is this like a hallucination she's having is it like she's hallucinating things because she's like has this like ridiculous rash that she's having um and it's just so hard like even up till the end I was still having that question like 
the the just from like the tint of the 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 screen that they use and like the color palette that they use at the end or or even when certain moments are like the TV is talking to them or, so, or talking to her or something like Dan Stevens is talking to him whatever his name is um and you're just having this moment and you're like is this just like she's talking to herself in her mind and she's pictured this or is she like dreaming this up or is it like a hallucination and and right up till the end I still like up till right now we're recording I still think that it's a hallucination that she's having it plays its cards very close to its chest certainly with uh, this one you're never sure what it uh, what exactly is going on uh, with with this one and till we get to the end and even at the end you're not still not you're still on the wiser of whether it is or it isn't hallucination but i like i mean i love kate Mucci as a an actress i think she's she really embodies that sort of uh quirkiness and i think it plays in really well to this character i mean the fact that they've um they've uglied her up so she has kind of a weird country mullet sort of thing going on but she really embodies this sort of awkwardness. I mean, as you said already, she's into taxidermy. She um, has a husband who's more interested in watching poker and eating pigs in blankets and really having any sort of form of conversation. They're living in this sort of like in this weird 70s suburban hell. Um, and you're right, she has these co-workers who don't resent her. I mean, they they seem to like her but at the same time she's always feels that she's on the outsider because she's not perfect like these women that she works with and this belief that this miracle cream is going to be the uh, solution to all our problems because it's what our co-workers use and you know they're all having these having these uh, wonderful lives and you see that scenes of her like trying to mimic their movements where they're like applying lotion and you see a mimic in it on the side because she's so desperate to try and find what it is that's going to help her fit in and as it uh progresses and she seems to be having worse and worse allergic reaction to it and her husband's saying you know just knock it off with the cream but at the same time the tv's telling her that the itching is healing it's gonna be uh doing what it did needs to do it's all about you know it's working for you and uh by the end it just goes completely off the rails really doesn't it into just completely gonzo territory the whole thing was really great and i think that you know kate micucci really fits into that role i think it's, because, it's also because i she has this a really unique voice yeah <laughs> that also seems to match really well with what she's doing here um and the appearance obviously you mentioned is really really good but i really really liked that the story brought out this her husband character which, you know, is played by Martin Starr. And he does a really great job in, you know, that character's really well-developed where while he seems like he doesn't really care about much of anything and he seems very, like, you know, whatever, rejecting everything around her, um, he also has this moment where he's, um, he's very encouraging about her. Like, he's really like, no, you're perfect the way you are. And he keeps trying to reinforce that point over and over again. And that's something that I think is, is, is really nice because... But you also have this feeling that, you know, it really brings out this reality that sometimes it doesn't matter what your partner is telling you, but it's really this sort of thing is really in your head when you feel like you need to fit in and when you feel like, oh, you need to do something or you need to be pretty or, you know, it's something that you need to get through on your own. Yeah. Um, I also appreciate the fact that this is slimy horror and there seems to be yeah. a real lack of slimy horror. So the fact that we have scenes where, like 
part of the uh, the big finale here is that she basically takes a bath in this cream which seems to be taken on this otherworldly presence kind of like the blob and i thought that the mm. ending was going to be that it consumed her but it's not yeah. to be the case but uh in the end we get some it only adds on to the body horror element here which is is light but um it uh it it, it had a real sort of sliminess to it which i i kind of appreciate i think modern horror is too dry we need to get cronenberg back on his uh <laughs> and obviously his son's doing uh body horror now as well so we need to get the Cronenberg clan just like working overtime to make horror slimy again. Yeah, no, because this one is like, it kind of like doesn't, you don't really know what's going to happen all the way until the end. No. So till the end, you, you keep thinking that sh this is just a fantasy that she's living. Like this rash is going to kill her, you know, type of thing. <laughs> and in the end, it kind of turns around where, um, you know, she gets embodied by this thing and, you know, she, you know, she can peel off this thing and this new body shows up. It's like, you know, it's like, what do you call it? A butterfly. Yes, exactly. And it's, and, and, it, and it, it, it was such a shocking type of twist because when you do a show like that, usually, usually you feel like, you know, whenever you do horror, you always think that things are going to go worse than it is and not really go better, right? Yeah, it's very rare that things work out, isn't it? So, <laughs> but this one is sort of like, is like wow it it worked but was this what we really wanted all along and i think that's the, the i think that's the question thing. Here. see and then that's the thing is that that's what i really love about the ending of this one is that when you get to the end she has these like close-up shots as she's laughing to the camera with all these women that she works with and now she's gotten what she wants but she's starting to see i guess she's in her face you can see kind of like oh is this what i really want and i think that that was so like that was such a clever move to end like that and um it, it it's really really well put together like the outside is kind of one that the more you think about it the better it is yes definitely um but no this is um i really again this was another sort of highlight to myself i yeah. think the it, it suffered again because of the length um i would have liked to see this one trimmed down which i think is going to yes. be a reoccurring theme throughout this series but um <laughs> certainly i think that uh annalee really just directed the hell out of this one and it was nice to see her doing something different again because she's always had like a very surrealist edge to her work whereas this one felt a little more grounded it's uh obviously got the suburban setting rather than fantastical lands that we obviously saw in her first two films so mm. it's nice to see her doing something something a little different and uh yeah i would definitely I'm, I'm as always i'm just excited to see what she does next so um but uh, apparently she's working on a, a gender swap version of cliffhanger with her next film scheduled to be mona lisa and the blood moon um which is a uh, new orleans set uh, horror which um, I'm excited. I'm excited about. I'm excited about her doing cliffhanger. To be honest, so. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk. Hello, Julie. What the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spots sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download the show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. So next up, we have Pickman's Model. This is uh, directed by 
the same director as of uh, the recent Firestarter remake, uh, Keith Thomas. Uh, another story based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, this one's uh, most notable for starring Crispin Glover, who stars as the title of Pikmin, who the art student Will Ferber becomes friends with and kind of becomes obsessed with Pikmin's work as it depicts various demons and gruesome scenes that cause this very mesmerizing effect on him. It's very sort of Stendhal Syndrome-esque. And years later, Ferber re-encounters Pikmin's work, uh, finding himself suffering horrific dreams, and really determined this time to get to the bottom of what it is about Pikmin's work that causes uh, them to have this effect on people. I like this one, uh, which is kind of weird for me to say because it's a period horror, and obviously for myself it's uh, not one of my more preferred genres, but I think it was the... um, it was nice seeing Crispin Glover doing something creepy again, which is kind of his wheelhouse these days. Because he was also in um, the remake of Wizard of Gore doing his creepy thing as well. So I think here he really embodies his character of uh, Richard Pickman. And um, Ben Barnes is pretty pretty damn good as well as our lead, Will Turber. But um, Kim, what did you think of uh, Pickman's model? Well, I mean, Pikmin's model for me was one of the more complete stories. I felt like, you know, there was like, obviously, because it's it's probably because it's based on like Lovecraft, right? So it feels, it feels like it's, it has like, you know, it's not just like a snippet of something. It feels like there's like yeah. a complete beginning of something and then an end to something. Um, although I do think that it didn't really need to have that maybe last, what, five minutes or something that it was there. Um, it definitely um, highlights again that problem with these episodes running like that extra 10 minutes too long. It's so, f- with, and I completely would agree with this one. We have a great ending and then it goes on for another 10 minutes. And it's like, great. Yeah. And I mean, we've had this talk before about, you know, the, the being parents part and you don't really enjoy the child and peril type of thing. So when you <laughs> go to the ending of this one, you have that kind of moment and it's just kind of like, it's kind of a spoiler, I guess, but in the end, like, we, we already gave our spoiler alerts at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the episode. So basically, like, you know, I, I'm not going to go further into it, but there's kind of that concept in there and I wasn't a really big fan of that. I thought that it was really great if they ended at that moment where we had that big reveal of where, you know, Pikmin's inspirations come from. Yes, um, exactly. And... And I mean, that's that I thought that would have been just like the perfect ending because you already see where all of this like uh, mesmerization is coming from, like, you know, because it's not only Will that's getting affected by it. It is other, you know, the other people at, at the gallery that sees it is also slightly affected by it. Um, so, you know, you already see that big that kind of like chain reaction to everything. So it didn't really need to have that last bit at all. I thought that everything was suffice for where it was, you know. Yeah, I think in many ways this reminded me of uh, John Carpenter's Cigarette Burns from the first season of Masters of Horror. In that case, it was the film that sent you mad, and this time it's the paintings that send you mad. So um, I was unsurprised, really, as I think we could already, that Del Toro includes so many people who are associated with Lovecraft or Lovecraft shorts or his own shorts, which are very Lovecraft-inspired. So... In many ways, while it is obviously Del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, it is also Del Toro's love letter to to uh, Lovecraft. Which is, I know Lovecraft's a problematic author for some people, um, especially, but in terms of his uh, work, I think it 
provides some very interesting source material to work from. And I think certainly with this one, it really built upon the original short story, which itself was more... It ends. It doesn't go into as much a detail with the relationship between Turba and Pikmin as we get here in the story, and instead it's sort of more um, a very sort of self-contained sort of short story of him going to Pikmin's um, workshop and really sort of discovering the. They do a different twist on how the fact that monsters are real um, exists, uh, but I think this one was kind of it worked within the uh, context of the story that was being told. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I've never read the story, but based on what you're saying right now, I, I do think that the approach here is very su- more suitable for, you know, like a short story style, uh, like a short sh- like a short film style where, yeah. you know, you have that relationship. So it kind of like enforces the like the characters itself and gives those two characters a lot more life than just, you know, hey, hello, I popped into your workshop and now I know what all this is about, you know? Um, so it's, you know, obviously it's probably deeper than that. But I mean, like, uh, with that, like, I think with with shorts sometimes, what we don't get is this, this deeper exploration of the characters. And I like that, you know, when you when you work with the, the short films, like here, where you're kind of more in, like, this medium medium length short film type of thing um or even long i don't even know how to say is it a long is it like a medium length short film i don't know i'd say it's a short you can classify it as a short film i mean it's around that 60 minute mark i mean you really got to go to the 80 minute mark minimum for it to be classed as a feature yeah exactly um but i mean everyone's going to have their own ideas of what what short film is most people think it's like around the 20 minute mark yeah. but i'd say anything this anything like tv episode length is really a short film um, yeah and certainly in the presentation here and i think certainly when you give the story a little more scope that obviously this episode has i mean you if you're doing it in a visual format you can have a little more flexibility you can broaden things out whereas if you're writing it in a um in, the, in a story um you're a little more restricted because you've got to essentially create this image in the reader's head yeah. and at the same time not confuse it by having like cast of thousands in it and all a bunch of minor characters that have no uh, nothing to do with the plot so I think it's fun in this one obviously when you get to see this the effect originally that Pikmin's art has on Turbo the fact he's sort of like he's this real sort of hotshot art student and he encounters Pikmin and then ends up kind of like a drunk and embarrassing himself in front of his fiance's family and we find out that he sort of like it takes all these years for him to sort of recover from this, and then he sort of encounters Pikmin again, and he sort of like finds himself like uh, suffering the same things. Only this time, it's not just him; it's people around him that are also uh, suffering. And I kind of got real uh, hints of Event Horizon with this one. Yeah, a bit. Eh? Like, yeah. In that that last uh, ten minutes and stuff, it all went kind of <laughs> horizon for me. Which yeah, it it felt like you know it had this kind of like possession type of story to it a little, mm. I guess. And um, yeah, it it turned very very psychological as it went along. Like it really dug deep into it because, but then at the same time, I felt like as the audience watching this, you kind of your your mystery is like, okay, well, what did he look at type of thing, right? Because there's yeah. there's a whole there's always like this moment where he's looking at a picture. But no one really knows what the picture like is for like say when when Pikmin shows back up and he delivers a a picture to 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 his house or to Thurber's house and then you're just looking at it and 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 he's looking at the picture 
And the kid looks at the picture, but we don't know what the picture is. <laughs> and then, but he's like, oh, send it back, you know, type of thing. And you're like, oh, well, how is this going to affect the kid? You know, like, uh, what's going to happen here? And that sort of thing, right? And and I like, I kind of like the little mystery behind it. It's kind of like, you know, what's in the suitcase. Um, but, uh, but I think that because some of the things really got the reveal later on, um, I don't know if it gave it more power or not. Um, I don't know. I still think it's a very strong short, but as I think more about it, I sometimes feel like this one had certain flaws in maybe some execution. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> cool. No, um, but uh, yeah, I'd say it's definitely definitely one of the stronger ones. It's definitely in that sort Absolutely, of middle yeah. range. It's not like up there with like Graveyard Rats or the Autopsy or even like Lot 36, but this is definitely a, a strong middle ground one. Uh, much like our next selection, Dreams in a Witch House, which was another one that I'd seen done previously in Masters of Horror at that time by Stuart Gordon. And I can't say I was a huge fan of it, but um, Catherine Harwick's version is, wow, it does phenomenal work she has done with this, this short story. Um, based on another Lovecraft short story, <laughs> It's, if you haven't seen a theme, it's really shouting out about now. Um, this one sees Rupert Grint returning from the uh, Harry Potter world, team up with DJ Qualis and Ismail Cruz Kovoda. Here he plays Walter Grimman, who witnesses his twin sister Eppley's spirit being dragged away from upon her death to the Forest of the Lost Souls and spends uh, the following years trying to figure out... Um, what happened to her how to get back to this uh, forest and really investigating a number of spiritual claims while along the way trying to find a way to contact the other side only to be dismayed that he constantly encounters frauds uh, posing themselves as mediums um in doing so he rents a room in the house where the executed witch kaziza mason and takes an in a drug that's uh designed to take him to this forest uh, only to find that you shouldn't really be tampering in the spirit world um this one as i said it's a very stylish uh, production this one as i say is directed by Catherine hardwick uh, who did 13 as well as twilight uh, she also did um red riding hood which i didn't watch and keep meaning to get around to now that you know uh, we've had some time because at the time it was caught up in that whole twilight uh teen heartthrob in horror nonsense so but the visual side of it really sort of stuck with me so i'm probably going to get around to watching it at some point soon and certainly more after watching this short um as um she certainly really shows her, her chops as a director i think this was uh this was really fantastic well, <laughs> uh, Kim did not. It seems. <laughs> no, no, no. I I thought it was super stylish, and I think that if you're watching Red Riding Hood out of the style of the story, yeah. then that's a thumbs up on that one. But everything else in that is a mess. All right. So just get in ready for you know, you know, for uh, you know, an average viewing experience. <laughs> Um, from what I remember, I, I watched it, I think, last year or something. I can't remember. Um, but I can't really remember it right now. I remember little bits of it. I thought they had a really nice twist, I think. Um, and that cool. was about it. Um, but, yeah, no, Dreams in that Witch House was 
hands down my favorite in this entire uh, entire cabinet of curiosities. Oh wow! I I really love this one. Um, one I really like the uh, the mystical forest type of concept. Um, yeah. I really like this different realm. It's really up my alley in that sense where, you know, you have that kind of fantasy element and then you also have this kind of like creepy element. And um, I have to say, I don't think I've seen Rupert Grint in anything else than Harry Potter. So He was in Thunderpants. Well, I haven't watched Thunderpants. I've never even heard of it's, it. <laughs> it's about the uh, kid with flammable farts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I there you go. Something to watch. <laughs> no, I haven't. So I haven't seen anything else by him, and I, I was kind of surprised and happy to see him do something like this, and really have you know like see a grown up Ron Weasley, you know, um, where he's he's much more. There's much more to his acting than that character. Uh, so it was a really nice surprise. I thought he did a really great job. Um, and you know, obviously, I I don't read a I haven't read any Lovecraft in my life, maybe like one uh, that I can't remember right now. Uh, but I feel like I have. But at the same time, like I think the story was so good in that sense where like you know the whole the whole witch house itself had this wonderful character to it. At the same time as, you know, just when he goes into moving, there's like so many things creeping in the corners. And then, and I am a big fan of like, I hate to say it, but I'm a big fan of like stories, which kind of like, um, where the character screws you over in the end. <laughs> like, oh, you think you're out? No, 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 you're not. <laughs> I, I love things like that. And, um, and and this story exactly had that at the end, and I really, really loved it. And I was really, like, it was great to see that, you know, like, the the little, uh, I don't know, what it is, is it the brother or the apprentice or the companion of the witch? I forgot. So Yeah, it's so familiar. It's like a man uh... rat, you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a man rat, and he's voiced by DJ Squalls, which I believe I only know him. I think, isn't he, like, part of Pirates of the Caribbean? The guy with the eye that kept rolling out? I don't know. Uh, DJ Squalls is probably best known for he was um, the sort of gangly guy on Road Trip. Ah. But he's been in, like, Breaking Bad, Supernatural, Scrubs. He's one of those guys, if you see him, then you go, oh, it's him. He was... Um, yeah, in Road Trip, he's the uh, the nerdy kid who makes out with uh, with the black the black chick when they go to the uh, fraternity. Yeah, no, I'm looking at the stuff. I've seen him in a few things as well. He was in uh, he was in Creep Show, the the remake version, obviously. Um, he's had a few he's had a few little uh, fun stuff there. He was oh yeah, I, I knew him from Z Nation. I watched a bit of that. I remembered his character from that as well. Oh, he was the DJ, I believe, in that. Yeah. And uh, no, no, no. I mean, he's 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 very very fun. I really like his character and like the voice work that because it's mostly voice work for this one, right? And the voice work for him is is really really fantastic. Like I, <laughs> it, it, it's such a fun character. Also, like the the lines and like the I don't know. <laughs> it's just such a it's just such a weird thing to see a man rat running around and you're just like when it first shows up you're like what is that you know like there's so much creativity in this and i I, like i don't know how true it is to the short story itself what changes it has i'm I'm not sure if you you read it before i've read it a long time time ago um this one's actually very true in the fact that it keeps it in that sort of like 16th century setting 
um sorry not 16th century i mean keeps it in a in the similar sort of setting to it i mean it cuts out some of the lovecraftian things such as like the older things and bits basically but it generally keeps all the main sort of players here as you said like the man rat jenkins brown <laughs> who's narrate who also serves as the narrator of this story which i thought was kind of fun and he gives it has a lot more of a cockney rascal sort of accent to him which is why it threw me off i didn't think it was dj because his uh voice so kudos to him and i think this is a great thing about rupert grint here he's not just doing the ron weasley thing he's like doing he's trying to branch out and being like um oh who's played harry potter i'm going to mind blank daniel radcliffe yeah. he's He's doing that Daniel Radcliffe, uh, Elijah Wood thing of just like picking a weird project to be involved in. And I would love to see him do more weird projects. I think he could be really, uh, really find his his niche. Um, and the whole time I'm not looking at him and going, "Oh, that's just like grown up Ron Weasley." I'm seeing it's sort of like here he is playing this character. Yes. And there's so many bits in the the start of this episode that just really sort of resonated with me such as like when they're doing the uh, fake seance and the production of ectoplasm and stuff yeah. all that sort of side of thing i'm just like such a huge fan of uh, since i saw the dan brown special seance where he talked about these old like spiritual um sort of sideshow uh, techniques that they used to to run and things so uh yeah i um i was i really did enjoy this one so um I'm excited to see what he does next, um, especially as he, you know, puts more and more distance between himself and Harry Potter. And um, he's in Knock at the Cabin, <laughs> which is um, the new M. Night Shanahan movie, uh, which actually doesn't look too bad. Okay. I, I haven't heard of it. I'm not, like, too super on track with the late with the recent stuff, so... The last, the, you know, seriously, the last I, I know is The Visit. <laughs> that was a while back, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, he's a vacation at a cabin with his uh, family. And they're taken hostage by these four strangers who demand they make the ultimate sacrifice to avert the apocalypse. And Dave Bautista is one of those strangers. Oh, okay. Which will either be exciting to you or you go, that does nothing for me whatsoever. <laughs> um... So, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Witch House? No, I don't really. Cool. Uh, next up, we had uh, Panos Cosmatos. I forgot how they kind of correct that. It's Panos Cosmatos. Cosmatos, um, maybe? Cosmatos. I think you're more on track than I am with this one. Uh -huh. um, he is the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Um, and his episode, The Viewing, is... Probably the most trippy one. It's another modern day setting one. Um, this is one that he also wrote himself, uh, along with uh, Aaron Stewart Anne. Um, this one also is most no there is noteworthy for starring Charlene Yee, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, it also has Eric Andre and Peter Weller, uh, as well as Sophia Boutilia. Um, here, the wealthy recluse Lionel Lassiter invites a bunch of people to his his. Um, mansion to take part in a special viewing at the same time he gives them drugs he lets them listen to trippy music and introduce them to his meteorite that he uh, keeps in the center of his apartment 
and in doing so the gathering of uh, these these people causes the meteorite to crack open and an oozing entity emerges, emerges um, surreal madness ensues I think is really the best way to go from there yes um, uh-huh. I, I dug the hell out of this one I'm a big I'm a fan of his work um, I certainly liked Mandy even though I felt that in watching Mandy, it could have like let the film breathe rather than just being this onslaught of craziness. But I think it was certainly one of the more interesting films that uh, Nicholas Cage did in that wilderness period that also gave us likes of Joe and Pig and Willy's Wonderland. And certainly, if you were a fan of those of uh, his films, then I think you'll like the viewing as well because it's very much in the same sort of style. It's a very sort of surrealistic piece um, that just constantly finds ways to mess with your mind while yeah. introducing odd weird, odd and weird characters as is certainly the case with uh, Lionel Luster a, this wealthy recluse who's designed his whole home to fit in with its surroundings and to he's commissioned someone to create music that complements the architecture and there's all these weird ideas that it throws at them but at the same time it has characters acknowledge that things are weird rather than just like going along with it and making us question what exactly is supposed to be happening as the audience but um yeah i again i like this one um kim what did you think of it though <laughs> well the viewing is very unique i mean there's a whole psychedelic element to it um that i think uh is pretty cool it's it's very weird and yet very mesmerizing. Like, you can't really take your eyes away from it at some point because you're just watching this and you're just like, what is going on? You know, like, you just have a <laughs> bunch of people, like, getting high and drinking things. And it's kind of like you're sitting around in a circle and you're with a bunch of random strangers and they're peer pressuring you to do something. Um, and then all of a sudden, you'll finish being peer pressured, and then they'll be like, yeah, let's go to a room and close all the doors and see this thing that I've never shown anyone before, you know? And you feel very, like, you know, you can, you can, un- you can imagine the people here who feel like, oh, well, you know, I'm so specially ch- chosen um, to come see this, you know, special thing. And then you go into this room, and this thing just looks so weird, like... <laughs> And right away, you have this angle of it where you already feel like it's not from this world. Um, it has this kind of statue, but kind of alive type of feeling to it. Um, yeah. No, I, I watched a horror short recently that was similar to that. Um, it was called Tisselboo. It's from okay. Netherlands, I think. And, and it has a similar concept of having this thing that that embodies like embodies nature in a certain way um yeah and it's like this giant weird mushroom or something um but yeah and and this one reminded me a lot of it when you saw that creature but then all of a sudden things go like crazy when uh what was it that they did and then they broke the <laughs> it was like they did something to it oh they blew the they blew the oh, yeah. smoke at it or something right the eric andre's character blows um pot smoke into it which awakens it yeah this was the secret all the while it just needed to get stoned (laughs) to emerge from a stone um i did like gary andre's character because he does really cool sort of bullshit on a lot of things yeah and 
it's uh, always great when you have a character who, who takes a moment to call people on their bullshit. It's sort of like, it's like, thanks, this has been real great, and it's been great doing your space cocaine. And <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I think it's between him and Charlie and you yeah. that's really sort of like sort of to myself and the characters who didn't really I didn't sort of resonate with just still felt very sort of fit perfectly within this world because they're either like part of uh, Luster's sort of weird cult like um, home that he's running where everyone's sort of like tuned in and tuned out uh, or they're just like angry which is also a really great way to counter tripped out and then if that doesn't hold your attention you know people's heads explode and melt so yeah it's so um, like things get things get wild and then i really yeah. loved it that you know usually a kind of like you know we have this you know there's this like kind of you know understanding or whenever we talk about like when horror movies make fun of horror tropes it's always about you know how how um colored people are the people who end up dying first and in this <laughs> one you know they're the first ones who are like yeah let's let's just go this is not right let's exit you know <laughs> and then just see them stumbling away and i just find it i just find it so funny the whole the whole process like it's very weird because in one way you think there's this like whole horror element to it and at the same time like when you're watching it the horror kind of falls away by the end and you're you're kind of like i am so this is so weird <laughs> mm. and yet <laughs> so entertaining <laughs> and that was like how I, how i felt about it like i don't know if i like it or i would go back to watch it again um because it is very very bizarre um and, but i think this was a very interesting experience to have as a viewing experience and surprisingly it's called the viewing so you know <laughs> indeed it's yeah it certainly has an interesting um monster here and i think this is the great thing it's sort of like if you're not buying into the trip to stuff here have some gore that, <laughs> that, there we go we'll win you over one way or another with this one and i think it's as i said it's not since ray's lost art we've seen a good face melting so yeah um gotta give it that yes, yes. <laughs> but it's still like hard so hard to not look at that scene and go oh this is just raids of the lost ark again <laughs> um but uh yeah it it ends on kind of a ominous ending um but i don't think we're ever going to see a sequel to this it's just uh it's just another panos's weird yeah trips he's decided to let us in on his world for a little bit so mm -hmm. but um i'm glad he's obviously had this platform for more people just to be to check out his his work and may have obviously missed beyond the black rainbow and, and mandy uh, along the way and i think if you like this one then uh, i would give mandy a watch i think that's probably the better of the two films that he's um, made already. He's currently got a bunch of projects in the works at the moment. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I mean, you make a really good point. I think that in general, like, obviously we're not at the end of this yet. We have one more episode to go. But I, I think that that's a really good point that you make, that in, in terms of any of these directors here, they all, like, it really makes you kind of, like, think about what, you know, like further viewing, like going deeper into the directors that that really pique your interest, and and going deeper into the stuff that they've already done, and, and I think that's what's really great about anthologies in general. They they have that effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, the next one is the murmuring. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, yes. and it's and it's directed by Jennifer Kent, which you know most of us know uh, did Baba Duke, which at least that's the one that I saw. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she happens to use the same actress from Baba Duke, Essie Davis, as the main character. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this did nothing for me. I'm gonna say right off the bat. Um, this is based on a short story by Del Toro, um, with a teleplay by Jennifer Kent herself. Um, this one follows Nancy and Edgar Bradley, a husband and wife ornithologist, um, here as you said, played by Etsy Davis and Andrew Lincoln. Um, they are studying bird murmurations, uh, which is basically the patterns which birds fly in. Um, and having recently lost the daughter Ava, they're struggling to deal with their grief and sort of burying their way in their work and decide to go away to a remote country home to further continue their studies. At the same time, Nancy starts seeing ghostly apparitions of a crying boy and a screaming angry woman. And at the same time, her husband sort of like dismisses them and believes that it's just her struggling to deal with the loss of their daughter. Um, yeah. This one's very nicely shot, but at the same time did very little for me. And I think it's because it's a ghost story and I have a very hard time getting on with ghost stories, especially subtle ones. Um, while they're obviously ghost stories I do enjoy, things such like, you know, House on Haunted Hill, uh, for example. Um, where it's more so, and sorry, Devil's Backbone in terms of Del Toro's work, I really enjoyed as well. But with this one, it was just much too subtle for me and did not hold my interest um, at all. So um, it was a fail for myself. But Kim, um, what to say? Um, the murmuring is very slow pace. Uh, I kind of felt it was very Jennifer Kent because that was how I felt about the Baba Duke also. Um, I'm not one of, like, I'm not one of the people who have, like, extreme love for Babadook. Uh, I think it's a great movie, but it's, like, I really love the monster in it. Um, the whole concept of bedtime stories and stuff like that coming to life. But I thought it was really, 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 like, there were some really creepy moments and stuff like that. Um, the thing with the murmuring is that... It's very slow, and like you said, it's very subtle. Um, there are some horror, like the ghostly um, elements are very predictable, and they're repeated constantly. Uh, so it feels a bit repetitive, um, that it kind of loses that effect. Uh, but I do like one thing about it, is that um, the ending itself was really nice. I think that very rare and that's one of the things i really appreciate from del toro's cabin of curiosities it's it's not about stories that always end on a bad note which is what most horror movies are you know like something ends and you're like oh no it's not the end you know but this one is really like uh for a lot for a few of the stories there there is a decent resolution to them and the murmuring has that type of effect where you usually have this ghost story that you're trying to resolve and figure out what's wrong. And it always turns into this, you know, I, I'm not saying this isn't like a tragic story. It is a very sad story as well. But uh, like once the stories behind the, the crying boy and, and, and the screaming angry woman comes to light, right? Uh, but I really like the ending in the sense that when 
you know, she she figures out what they need in order to kind of pass on. And I think that that's a really nice touch to the story. Um, but as a story as a whole, I thought it was more of like a family drama. It was like there was constantly um, the husband and wife just complaining to each other. <laughs> and one doesn't want the affection because she's not ready. And then the other one's like, why won't you want me? You know, type of thing. And then you're like, <laughs> it's, it's a very like... It's like a very like wishy washy love story between a couple. Um, while you know, I can pot, I you know, I can, I can understand where that's all coming from. But uh, in the space of you know, watching a million birds fly around and you know, <laughs> fly in patterns, and and then you have like all the stuff. The horror elements are very little. Um, like it's. It is, it is a miss for me. Like, I thought this one was a bit, um, other than the ending and some of the few, like, the first time those scares hit, it didn't really do too much for me either. Um, I thought it was a bit, I think it was a bit too dramatic. Um, the mystery and horror kind of got lost in all the drama. So, I'm not, not, not a huge fan. It wasn't a great way to end the Cabinet of Curiosities. It, it kind of felt a little bit like... After all of the stuff we went through before, like all seven yeah. episodes of things that we had gone through, all the excitement, the weirdness, the psychedelic, the you know, <laughs> this was a really weird way to end it. Definitely so. Um, it's weird the fact that I'm watching this and I'm just sitting there going, you know what? I'd rather just rewatch Antichrist again, <laughs> which is probably the more extreme way of telling this story. Um, Again, obviously dealing with the loss of a child and a couple struggling to deal with it, and in Vontry as well, that leads to <laughs> leads to violence on a number of levels and twisted Im- imagery. But I still would have found it still find it a lot more enjoyable than the <sighs> the plodding around that this plot does. I mean, yes, it's very well shot and it's very it has moments where it catches your interest, but just ultimately, I just failed to connect on this one and just any sort of level really it just uh, did not engage me in the way that many of the others even like the lesser episodes of this series um i i still find myself sort of going you know i'd rather watch something try and find an example now uh say like uh, rather watch like pikmin's model again than the murmuring and even though i understand that pikmin's model has its has its uh it has its issues it's Still, one I would see myself returning to a lot more uh, sooner than the memorying. So, I think even the viewing, but then again, it's hard to compare the yeah. memorying and the viewing because the the viewing such a onslaught on the senses, and this one's more. Uh, it's trying to play mind games, but it's just not. It just never builds up any the right sort of tension, really. Mm. So, yeah, it didn't. As I said, it just uh, did not work for myself, but. Um, Ultimately, I mean, would you say you want to see a second series of Cabinet Curiosities? Oh, for sure. I mean, so I, I think that I think that the directors that he chose were really good choices. Mm. Um, they all have... Uh, it's kind of like when we did the female director uh, season, where, you know, everyone has uh, work, like, notable work that not everybody has seen. But at the same time, not enough work for it to be like, okay, they're like super known either. So it, it's really, really nice to see them 
you know, being able to do an expose on a bunch of directors and giving them that platform to kind of show their skills, show their abilities. And um, I mean, even though, you know, we were we were complaining about the murmuring being not too good. I still think that there is some stylistic elements to it that, you know, shows off, you know, for some people. I know that, you know, if you look at like uh, some of the reviews of the murmuring, there are a lot of people who really like it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're definitely not the, you know, <laughs> we're not the be all end all of it. Um, but all, but, uh, you know, like, obviously we don't like, even for me, I, I like ghost stories. So that's why probably I found a little bit more value to it than you did. Um, uh, cause that's my boathouse. <laughs> I really, really like it. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, but I think that, you know, it's a really great thing. I mean, how about you? Do you want to see a second season? I would like to see a second season, certainly. And I agree with yourself in the fact that Del Toro here has provided a really great platform for a lot of these directors to become noticed. I mean, obviously, people like Vincenzo uh, Natale. I mean, there's people out there who know him for his films like Cube and Splice. And then there's other people who recognize his work. He's done direct episodes of things like Breaking Bad. Um, and at the same time, I'm always happy to see Anna Lily Amapur just... Yeah putting out more work i love her work like through and through um i was a huge fan of go walk some alone at night i was one of the few people who liked bad batch um so for her to have another platform um here i was just all for it um and at the same time it also brings in a lot of like really interesting character actors into this i mean people like crispin glover and yeah. i'd say rupert grint that we it gives them a chance to like do something different, a chance them to to expand the repertoire or really get themselves sort of like re-noticed and be like, oh, I remember you. Um, but there's certain, I mean, I, I'm. It's hard to like to say like when they come to see season two, you'd like to see less Lovecraft because Lovecraft is so infused in Del Toro as well, much like Stuart Gordon's. There's certain authors that directors become obsessed with um and certainly for those two lovecrafters constantly appeared or been referenced throughout their work and and there's certainly directors that i would like to see turn up in the second season um maybe like julia uh who did uh yeah. raw and titan e um yeah. maybe like the soska sisters would be really fun to yeah. to do an episode so this well, there's I definitely drinks I mean, out there. Yeah, I, th there's there's a lot of like there's an abundance of people that could really do well in this. Um, but I think you know Del Toro really chooses people who he feels would really reflect the Lovecraftian type of story really well, because you know <laughs> that's his that's what that's what he really really likes. So <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure the next episode, the next season will be if he if he has the next season, it will be the same type of thing. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, you know, because that that's that's what he you know that's what he he enjoys, right? Um, I really love his openings as well. He's got he has got one of those great accents, much like a Herzog. Yeah, where you just like anytime he's just like narrating or talking about something, it's just wonderful to hear him him talk about this, and you feel this sort of like genuine enthusiasm he has for these curiosities, and it's sort of like as we said at the, towards the start of this episode, you know that he's probably got a cabinet of curiosities himself. He just like wheels it out and freaks people out at dinner parties with it by producing odd items from it and mm -hmm. even like how he was like when we have um 
his episode, um, The Outside. Uh, yes, it was The Outside. Um, where he's talking about the remote being this magic wand and late night TV viewing. The way he's presenting it is exactly the same as he presents one of the more gothic or period pieces here. And I think it's just every time he like uh, turned up to provide the introduction, it just like perfectly set up the theme of that episode. So, um, and the fact he also in says who the director is. He's yeah. all like, determined. He's all like, you know, this is who directed this. Go check him out. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a really nice thing. Like I think that the the idea that he he comes out and introduces the piece and stuff, it, it's a really really nice touch to this whole season. Um, yeah, I I really think you know it's it's worth it to do a second one, and I and I don't see any reason for them to not greenlight a second one for him, seeing you know David Fincher's gotten what like three seasons of love death robots at this point <laughs> they, they can just keep producing love death and robots for myself it's every time we get to the end of a love death and robot season it's sort of like what, what where's when's the next one coming um and i think the thing with love death and robots it's got the i think the reason it, i'm more ex looking forward to another season of that than cabinet of curiosities is just because it covers a wider range of uh, stories rather than this one itself very sort of like set in the sort of stories it was going to tell throughout the course of the season um, and I think it was the fact that it was so stacked with like period pieces that um, also sort of like didn't resonate with me as much as if they'd like mixed it up more and put some more modern stories in there mm -hmm. such as like uh, more like the autopsy and lot um, lot 36 lot 36 um, and I think that's the thing when you look at Love, Death and Robots, it's such a range of stories and styles and things. It's constantly keeping you engaged. It's not just a bunch of the same things, which um, at times it felt felt that this was very sort of set in its uh, particular periods that it wanted to. And I think that, again, that's just because you're using a lot of um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft work and obviously it's got a, a time and setting to it. Um but you know, maybe this just inspires you to go off and check out a bunch of Lovecraft stuff. You can pick it up real cheap on the Kindle. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's not well. It's it's definitely something. I just I just never remember that you know I yeah. want to read Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some there's some interesting stuff in there, <laughs> to say the least. I know uh, when I was working in the um in Borders, I had uh, one of my um underlings he was a real lovecraftian fan and used to constantly recommend it so that's how i stumbled into lovecraft so but yeah so um yeah i would say it's a recommend from us both them yes definitely cool well that brings us to the end of tonight's episode thank you as always for listening if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be leaving to listening to us leave us a review let us know what you think of the show you can check out our blog, which is uh, moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. So come say hi to us there. Let us know what your favourite stories of this collection was and who you would like to see heading up stories in Season 2. But until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks to my cousin Kim. And we'll be back very soon with another selection. But until then, good night. <laughs>